Welcome to Tradecraft. International trade makes headlines, especially when disputes arise among countries. Business is on the front lines of these disputes, but they are waged over politics and law. Join host Colin Janik in conversation with trade expert and Georgetown University professor Mark Bush as Tradecraft takes an in-depth look at trade issues making headlines today and the ones that will be making headlines tomorrow. This is Tradecraft. Welcome back. Hey, Colin. Good to be with you for episode 49. Mark, in a recent op-ed in The Hill, you examined the EU-China bilateral deal on geographical indications through the lens of feta cheese. It was a fascinating piece. I highly recommend that our listeners take a look at it. But today, I want to use our conversation to explore what this EU-China deal an agreement that was inked in mid-September, suggests about the state of geographical indications, or GIs, in global trade, and what that could mean for the future of global agricultural trade specifically. So, with that being said, set the scene for us if you would. In the new year, an EU-China geographical indications agreement will debut, and it's pretty provocative stuff. At first, both the EU and China will have the other respect 100 geographical indications that they have designated. So if you take a look at what the EU is peddling, of those 100, they've got 15 spirits, 54 wines, and 14 cheeses. That's pretty much par for the course when the EU goes about negotiating geographical indications in its various preferential trade agreements. China has geographical indications on a variety of foodstuffs and a variety of teas. The outstanding ones for the EU are things like fats, oils, fruits, and that rounds out the top 100, but the deal doesn't stop with the 100 from each side. Ultimately, the agreement is designed to grow to at least 550 geographical indications split between them within four years' time. And let's back up just a bit here. Remind us what a GI is. A geographical indication is a monopoly right on the use of a name where the good's quality, reputation, or other characteristic is due to its geography. So we always have in mind champagne, cognac, Irish whiskey. Added to the list is now things like feta, ouzo, And if they all sound European, that's because most of them that are well-known are European. Cheddar, Stilton. It's a pretty powerful insight, if you think about it. A geographical indication as a monopoly right on the use of a word therefore precludes others from using the same word. In that way, for those who feel that geographical indications are protectionist, that's fairly profound because by virtue of monopolizing the word, you have done more than you could ever accomplish through a tariff. You have kept your competition out of the marketplace in terms of using a term that consumers understand. But geographical indications are really quite complicated. And you get that sense from the EU-China deal. It's 100 pages long. It has 14 articles and seven annexes. And The tricky part is simply in defining what the geographical indication means, what it sounds like in terms of how a consumer would understand it, 
And you get that sense from the first annex, which notes that in registering one of these things, a geographical indication, there's got to be due concern for demonstrating the ways in which the product's characteristics are due to the geographical area or the natural environment, like soil conditions or climate characteristics, as well as human and other elements, such as the reputation or the tradition that the good derives from, which give it that link to a given geographical area. Right. Scotch is a well-known geographical indication. There are a variety of contributors to its designation as Scotland's intellectual property. There's the water. There's the soil. There's a lot of things that also go into tradition. That means that it's more than just tying it to a given region. It's really defining the essence of what is meant by the term scotch. But it's not just scotch. It is also things that are associated with scotch, as we'll discuss. Now, those things associated with scotch aren't necessarily intellectual property themselves, like a geographical indication. They are descriptors and adjectives and kind of key words that in the consumer's mind lead them to believe that what they are looking at is scotch, even if it's not called scotch. That makes this all very complicated. Furthering the complexity of all of this is the fact that scotch, wines and spirits, get enhanced protection, notably at the World Trade Organization, under the IP agreement called TRIPS, Trade-Related Aspects of Intellectual Property Rights. But not so foodstuff. So what does that mean in practice? A whiskey, a single malt whiskey product produced with the same ingredients but outside of Scotland cannot be called Scotch type or Scotch style. But for feta, you could come across a product called feta-like cheese, feta-style cheese, cheddar-like cheese. So there's always been this two-tier system at the World Trade Organization. Wine and spirits get enhanced protections, but not so foodstuffs writ large. That's a big deal because Europe wants everything that it has in the form of a geographical indication to get these added protections, precluding the use of hyphen type, hyphen style, to explain to a consumer what the product is. But Europe isn't getting a lot of political support in this push. That's because a lot of countries have big questions about how much consumers actually understand the origins of these products and whether, in fact, the term feta, cheddar, are now so generic and untethered from a geography that they shouldn't be given this protection under intellectual property. To do the job, Europe is thus taking matters into its own hands. It's pushing in its preferential trade agreements to get these GIs, geographical indications, protected on par with wine and spirits at the WTO, meaning added protections across the board. But Europe is having to do this largely on its own because of the pushback from many countries that are also in the game of feta cheese. So how many European GIs are we talking about here? Europe has over 3,000 registered geographical indications, but it's getting a tiny fraction of those in its trade deals. Wow. 
So for example, in its bilateral with Canada, the EU got 168 geographical indications, but in its bilateral with Japan, it only got 72. In a trade deal with Thailand, it's got 171 that it's pushing for. Now, the EU has 14 agreements under negotiation right now in which it is pursuing geographical indications. The interesting part isn't just the extent of the list, but how deep those protections go. Now, in the deal with China, the real interesting part isn't so much that Europe is starting at 100 and then they will add another 175 within four years. The interesting part is that whether it's feta or scotch, it gets enhanced protections on day one. That's by virtue of Article 4. Now, Article 4 is one of 14 articles in the EU-China deal. But Article 4 is the one that sets out that all GIs will be getting the enhanced protections typically associated with wine and spirits. That means no more cheddar style or feta-like. That's a really big deal. But it's got a problem, the EU that is. And you get a feel for that by virtue of the fact that there's a footnote on feta. And the footnote has a number of stipulations, but more or less sets out an eight-year transition period to engage with feta fully. What does that mean exactly? This is really an effort by Brussels to kick the can down the road. And that's because of intra-EU squabbling over feta. You see, the root of the issue is that Denmark makes a lot of feta cheese. So too does Bulgaria. Likewise, France. Brussels is concerned. It doesn't quite know what to do about this because Brussels has had to sanction Denmark in the past for not pulling back on its feta marketing. Now it will have an eight-year grace period to get things right with some stipulations as per the footnote. But there are other countries that also make feta. The U.S. for one, Australia for another. Now, Australia is the really interesting story because the EU-China deal largely builds on the depth of protections that the EU got from Australia in their bilateral deal. So Australia comes along and offers enhanced protections across the board. So too did New Zealand. Likewise, what Indonesia is proposing. They have some pretty complicated language because there are these questions about how far to push some of these GIs. And you get the sense that there is considerable angst over these because, for example, Australia held no fewer than three months hearings in Australia to vet opposition to Europe's geographical indications. Yeah, understandably so. Now, Azerbaijan, which is in the pipeline for an EU deal, has given Europe almost everything that Europe wants. India pushed back as well. India parried the EU list of geographical indications with a long list of non-agricultural GIs of its own. So Europe is always up against the problem of we get, but we have to give. Now, interestingly, in a deal with Central Africa, there are no GIs on the pages of the text at first, but eventually they will take up the question, how many GIs and to what depth are these protected? Mark, I have to stop you there and just ask, have these GIs gotten out of control? 
have they gone too far? I mean, are, are they meaningful as intellectual property? Critics argue that, like Feta, some of these are now sufficiently generic that they no longer mean anything in the mind of consumers with respect to a given geography. And that as a result, enshrining them in intellectual property and moreover giving them enhanced protection like wine and spirits is just too much. The U.S. in the negotiations over the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership really pushed back on a variety of EU GIs, mostly on wines, but also kept insisting that too many of these GIs have crossed the Rubicon into the nature of generic form and as a result don't deserve the intellectual property backing. Getting that balancing act right is a challenge. And the question is, where do you go to get answers on how to get the balancing act right? You're gonna get a lot of comparisons and a lot of discussions about what part of the GI is actually geographically unique, if anything. And you can appreciate the complexity of figuring this all out when you take a look at the first annex in EU China, which goes to great lengths to set out what it is that has to be established in order to get the backing of intellectual property. Okay. But what I want to add in this episode is that that's really only half the game. The GI is not the extent of the story. And you have a sense for this as well in the way in which trade deals are being negotiated. So what's the other part of the story? The other half of the story comes in the form of descriptors and adjectives that often go along with these geographical indications. Think about it this way. Port is a Portuguese geographical indication. As a wine and spirit, it moreover has enhanced protections. But the descriptors ruby and tawny are highly correlated with port. Now, Ruby and Tawny are not themselves intellectual property, but they are playing a supporting role. So the question is, do you have the ability as the owner of the geographical indication to prohibit the use of Ruby and Tawny even when they are not coming in on a label of port? That is why under the Trans-Pacific Partnership, great care was taken to ensure that Ruby and Tawny were not restricted in this way. But other terms like clo are also in the mix. And the problem is that it doesn't even stop there. There's a recent case in the European Union where a German whiskey maker produced a product called Glen Buchenbach. Now, there's no mention in the title of that whiskey, the word scotch. But not only a German, but an EU court were asked to weigh in on Glenn Buchenbach. The decision was kind of mixed. On two line items in law, the German whiskey maker was cleared. But on a third, it was deemed that Glenn was misleading suggesting that potentially a consumer might mistake the product as being scotch, even though there is not the word scotch in the label, 
nor is there a hint that this is Scotch style or Scotch type. Fascinating. So when Glenn becomes itself a trigger of the GI, what is really being protected at the end of the day? In case you're curious, the German story is an exact replica of an Indian case. In that case, an Indian court also found that an Indian whiskey purveyor using Glen in its label was misleading consumers. But you see, Glen is not itself intellectual property. And like the German story, the Indian whiskey purveyor never said Scotch-like or Scotch style. Never mind Scotch. These words aren't in the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Glenn isn't one of the words protected for widespread usage. Now, some will say, come on, Glenn is water. Glenn is obviously a Scottish type word that will trigger in the minds of consumers at point of sale the idea that what they are buying is scotch. Sure, but Ruby and Tawny, where do you draw the line? Now, in a way, this is like all intellectual property. You're trying to, by virtue of extending monopoly rights to the IP holder, having to figure out how far you can go with this protection. In that way, it's not dissimilar from debates about patents or trademarks or copyrights. But it is becoming really interesting in as much as we are getting both within EU and international questions, not just about the GI, but the words that are correlated with them. And that is, in a way, testing the limits of what countries are willing to protect as intellectual property. So Mark, with that in mind, what does the EU-China deal mean for, say, American producers of feta? That's the beauty. It's the third market reach. So American feta going into China will have the obstacle that feta is designated as number 16 on Europe's original 100 list of geographical indications. The more that Europe can lock up foreign markets through trade deals and standalone agreements, the harder the problem for American agriculture in explaining what it is they're selling in those same markets. And it won't just be inside the Chinese market, obviously in Australia, New Zealand, Indonesia, Thailand, and Azerbaijan. U.S. agriculture will be up against the name, and the name issue is becoming much more lethal in terms of market access than tariffs. And that's the point. This is one of the most creative mechanisms to ensure against competition, and that's why they are so debated every time a trade deal or a standalone agreement is struck. And the EU-China deal is a standalone agreement. What, if anything, does this signal about the EU's GI strategy going forward? The EU likes to pursue geographical indications in the context of its trade agreements, but it does have several standalone agreements. In fact, it has two standalone agreements on geographical indications with the United States on wine and spirits. It also has a standalone agreement with Iceland on agri-foods. 
So the action is pretty much either covered through trade deals or standalone agreements. And what's interesting about both types, as opposed to what's going on at the WTO, is that you're beginning to see the extension of these geographical indications into things like handicrafts and other products that weren't necessarily the first things on the mind of negotiators way back when, when they started talking about geographical indications. Interesting. But from a marketing perspective, you have to be awed by the power of what a geographical indication stands for. You are literally monopolizing the use of a word that is the key to selling a given product. And while we all may have very strong feelings, pro-Scotch, pro-certain wines, the fact is that that's a lot. And the descriptors and adjectives simply add to the mix and make this, from a marketing perspective, one of the most potent devices to be granted in the context of market competition. And that's why they shouldn't be taken lightly. They should be protected, especially where the geographical indication stands out as being so obviously rooted in a given geography. But you'd be hard pressed to associate some of these GIs, especially on food stuff, with a given region. So you've got not only international tensions, but within Europe tensions over certain of these names. And that's why the footnote on FEDA under EU China is so interesting. When you see an eight-year phase-in, you know that there are deep politics behind the scenes. And those deep politics are gonna be difficult to manage in eight years time as they have been in the past, because as I mentioned, the EU has had to have several conversations with Denmark about its production of feta cheese. Mark, in your op-ed, you wrote that the EU-China deal could, quote, change the landscape of global agricultural trade. What did you mean by that? The reality is that China is Europe's third largest agri-foods market. And to seal that one up through this bilateral is a serious win for European geographical indications. Now, when the U.S. goes to sell its various products, the marketing becomes that much more complicated. And as a result, the challenge is that much greater in terms of getting more access to that important market for U.S. vendors. And when you see the ripple effect across other third markets as the EU goes gobbling up countries in its PTAs and standalone deals, that just adds to the challenge. And ultimately, U.S. agriculture is in the interesting position of desperately needing an IP strategy in order to figure out what to do in going forward, along with a really detailed approach to things like health and safety standards. So if you think about agriculture, what is it mostly known as being about? Tariffs and subsidy, right? Historically, Whenever you said ag, and when you thought about the agreement on agriculture at the WTO, you thought tariffs and subsidy. Well, this is a real new era for agriculture. Now you've got things that are much more profound, like geographical indications and health and safety standards. The benefit there being that if a foreign producer doesn't line up with your geographical indication or doesn't meet your health and safety standard, they're out. So these are triggering autarky, whereas a tariff or a subsidy is just giving a slight competitive edge. 
Is there any role for the WTO to play in reining in action on GIs? You'd like to see a multilateral approach, but I don't know that the WTO is in any position now to take on this issue, nor is the WTO likely able to deal with the fact that some of these PTAs and standalone agreements have gone so much deeper than what we've seen under trade-related aspects of intellectual property rights. So I would imagine that there will be at some point the need to have a number of the big trading countries, the agricultural powerhouses, collectively decide on the future of these GIs and how to deal with handling these under domestic and international intellectual property rights. But in the meantime, full steam ahead for the EU and the fact that you do have this embraced by other countries is suggestive of the fact that whatever's being offered by the EU makes it worthwhile surrendering the ability to use certain of these terms in the making of certain of these products. Mark, as we close out, any last thoughts? These GIs are profound from a marketing perspective. Obviously, consumers have grown to know certain products by certain names. It's important to respect the geographical and traditional history of some of these products, but at what point can we really know when a term has crossed over into genericness such that when a consumer goes to buy cheddar, it's not that they're really thinking West Country Farmhouse cheddar, it's that they're thinking about a particular mixture of ingredients that is made in many countries around the world. But the fact that you are monopolizing a term gives great advantage to the IP holder and is seriously consequential from a marketing perspective because you have seeded uncertainty then about what other is. So there becomes a question about what is cheddar like? What is cheddar style? Is it actually cheese? Is it processed in some way? What are we talking about? And that's why you see this deep battle, politically speaking, over many of these geographical indications. And you know the battle is raging because of the 3,300 registered GIs in the EU, the EU is getting a tiny fraction of those in any of its given trade deals. And really up until the deal with Azerbaijan and up until the EU-China deal, they've been looking at about 170 of 3,300. That is not the kind of batting average that many agri-farmers in the EU might have hoped for, but it certainly is a reflection of the politics of the day. Mark, thanks so much for your time. So great to speak with you as always.